Hi, I'm Kern Berry, and welcome to Difficult Conversations, where we explore how we can talk to each other in ways that heal divides and change hearts and minds. One of the challenges of difficult conversations is that they require strong relationships. As we now know, it's relationships that open hearts and minds, not facts. But one pushback I often get is why build a relationship with someone we adamantly disagree with? Aren't we just setting ourselves up for something that's going to be aggravating at best and downright infuriating at worst? Well, not necessarily. Building relationships with people we disagree with can actually be extremely rewarding. That's the experience of my cousin, John Carpolo. For seven months, from October 2017 to April 2018, he did something most West Coast liberals would never do. He spent time working in a gun shop, getting to know the people who sell them and the people who buy them. And he's here with me now to tell us why he did it, share some of his experiences, and what he takes away from it all. So, John Carpolo, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, great to have you here. Now, as you know, I invited you to be my first podcast guest because you did something very few people like you would do. You decided to work in a gun shop. You decided that you were going to actually be okay with selling people guns. Now, a lot of people would would do that without a problem, but again, not people like you. So I'd like to start with just telling us about you and why that would make that an unlikely choice for people like you. Uh, born and raised in, in uh, Oakland, California to very liberal parents. Uh, have a very liberal family. My sister uh, is and her husband, very uh, anti-gun. Certainly uh, most of my friends, uh, same thing, anti-gun. Then from you know high school on, going to very liberal colleges, uh, taking on a job, living in you know, very liberal cities over the course of my uh, my life, from Santa Barbara to Berkeley to Eugene, Madison, Wisconsin, and then finally ending up in Boulder for 20 years where we raised our family. So I guess from that perspective, you wouldn't expect somebody like me to be comfortable getting employment in a gun shop you know, I'm, I'm uncomfortable around guns. Maybe that's, that's a good way to put it. So, so obviously something made you decide that you wanted to do this. You wanted to, I guess, experience what that would be like. So could you t- describe a little bit of your, your journey? Like, why did you decide to go into that particular, I'll call it an adventure? We had, like I said, we'd been living in, in liberal college towns for 38 years of our marriage, my wife and I, Lori, have been, like I said, you know, for everything from Santa Barbara to, to Madison, Wisconsin. And all of our friends kind of fell into that basket uh, of folks who are very, very liberal, anti-gun, anti-Trump. And I just, I agree with them on all those different points, but I'm just sick of it. I was just tired of listening to the same message over and over and over again. And I just had a really difficult time believing that, that all these people were bad people, that, that there was no saving, you know, element to their, their personality. And so Lori and I, you know, we were getting on in years. I think we were 58, 59. Um, we'd been in our various different careers for 
for a good 30 years and we were tired of, of just living in this environment, the Boulder environment for all these years and finally said, well, let's just take a risk. Let's, let's go someplace. It's conservative. Let's go someplace. It's, you know, we didn't know it at the time, but, uh, Arnold is, you know, a concealed carry, uh, sort of, uh, County in, in Northern California. A lot of people carry guns there and which was a real shock, uh, uh the first time we heard it, but, um, yeah, I mean, just let's go do something different. Let's meet different people and get to know them and, and make up our own minds separate from, you know, what other people were telling us as to whether or not there was any saving grace to the, to the 140 or so million people that supposedly were, you know, uh, that don't have anything, any redeeming qualities. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of the, the overall message that you, that you hear that, you know, people who are pro gun or, or pro Trump or any of these things are just horrible, horrible people. And I, I just got tired of it. I wanted to, I wanted to see for myself. Prior to this uh, interview, you you sent me. I know you're you're working on a book about your experiences, and you sent me the first chapter, your introduction. Um, and one thing you say in there is that um, aside from all of your ideological beliefs, you spend most of your time doing very mundane things. Right? It's just everyday stuff that preoccupies you, and you're sort of funny about it. You know, you think about what you're going to eat for breakfast. And, you know, you think about wheat thins and other things like that. But your point was that most of the time we're just living our life. And and yet there's sort of this feeling in, in the U S right now is that the other side thinks the other side is just trying to destroy their life. Right. I mean, this, this big, huge intention to make life really difficult for the other guy. Could you say a little bit more? I mean, you describe it much more eloquently than I, than I just did, but I I just thought that was a really great point. And I'd love you to go into it a little bit more. Sure. Um, Yeah. I mean, you go to parties, you know, know, potlucks or whatever it is, and you get together and, and the talk for the last, you know, probably last 10 years always gravitates to, sort of you know the evilness of the other side and, and, and don't get me wrong i have friends who are on the right and and they do the same thing the people on the left are trying to take away our guns they're trying to you know force socialism on us they're all communists whatever you know you know the lines mm-hmm. and and the people on the left it's it's kind of like well those people you know it's as a result of them they're killing you know families they're killing children you know they're trying to destroy the environment and i I don't believe that, uh, especially from my experiences living up in, in the Sierras. Uh, most of the people that I met were, were pretty decent people. And, and like I said in my introduction that I sent to you, you know, they, they've got very strong opinions about a couple of different subjects, you know, be it abortion or gun, gun regulations or things of that nature. But for the most part, they're, they're a lot like me. They love their families. They're, they're very concerned about their health. They're very scared about the future. And, and I suspect that, that a lot of that, you know, that sort of division that, that exists within the country is, is simply, it's, it's amplified simply because we we're listening to, we're not listening to our neighbors. We're not talking to our neighbors, but instead what we're doing is we're listening to the voices, you know, in the media podcast like this one, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, things of that nature, instead of actually making our own decisions about 
who people are and, and whether or not they can or cannot be friends and, and colleagues. I think it's really essential. I think it's essential for us to, to mix, to get to know the people who um, disagree with us or we think disagree with us. And, and I think that once we start doing it, or, or if we can possibly do it, I don't know if we can or not, can't, but if, if we do it, I think what we find is they are more like us than, than we thought. They're not evil. They're not delusional. I mean, there are some, <laughs> don't get me wrong. There are a couple of people who came into the shop at downright scary, but, but I think they're for the most part out of the hundreds of people that I met working there they're mostly like me and, and other folks who lean to the left. Mm. If that makes yeah. any sense. Yeah. I mean, I'm just going to uh, quote you because this also just struck me and it's, it's just what you were just talking about. <coughs> and, uh, for the most part, Trump supporters I met were reasonable folks who have strong opposing opinions on a very small collection of topics. Outside of that, they're just like me and all my brethren on the left. And, and I, I do think, you know, and this has been my experience too, that we hyperemphasize that small collection of topics and they make that the total basis of the relationship, right? Those, those few things that we really disagree on. And uh, I think gun control is one, you know, abortion is one. And we just sort of lose perspective about the, the rest of the person's humanity, right? Um, the yep. part that we, we can relate to. So there must've been some trepidation about kind of that first day you walked into that gun shop. I would love to just sort of hear from you. Okay. You've decided to do this. You're going to, I think you go like a couple of days a week, right? And you did this for a little bit more than half a year. Is that right? Well, I started a couple of days a week and then I just enjoyed it so much. I ended up going in probably five days a week, two of which were paid. And the other three, I just was there to hang out and help out and, and, Sure, there's there's a trepidation, there's an, a, a discomfort that I had being around guns and knives. My 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 first day there uh, was really interesting. I walked in, and there was the guy who is the boss, uh, Emil. He's, he's just a great human being. Uh, his son was there, Isaac, and and then there was a a local uh, sort of highway cop who, as it turns out, spends quite a bit of time in there. Doesn't spend as much time out on the highway as I thought he might. <laughs> he does come in, he just kind of, you know, shoots the shit for lack of a better term. Um, and then we sat there for probably three hours just sort of chatting it up and, and talking to each other, asking questions. The shop itself is, is just riddled, as you might expect, with, you know, with weapons. Everything from small handguns to you know, shotguns and rifles and then uh, AR-15s and things of that sort. And that actually didn't make me feel really uncomfortable. What, what actually felt the most uncomfortable is um, it's, it's not just a gun shop, it's a knife shop. So it's, it's called the Rusty Knife up in Arnold, California. And Emil, who's, like I said, he's just a beautiful person. I stay in touch with him, you know, to this day he asked me if I had a knife and, and I said, no, I don't carry a knife. I, I mean, I've got the standard Swiss army knife, but I don't carry anything else. And then he promptly sort of started pulling out some knives to show me different knives. And it was at that point that, uh, 
actually a, a police officer from Los Angeles walked in with his, his girlfriend. They were traveling up in Northern California and he was looking for a concealed knife, which I didn't know was actually legal for cops, but there you go. Anyway, these two walk in and Emil starts showing this guy some of the concealed knives that, that he has. And this guy is over there with the highway patrol guy and they're they're going through this sort of animated slashing moves that you know look like it was from a b-rated kung fu movie <laughs> um that's when when things started to get tense for me and and emil picked up on it and he goes what's going on and and that's when i sort of conveyed to him that there was an incident when i was living in boulder i don't know if you remember this or not but five or six years before that I was in my home. It was 12 o'clock at night and there was an explosion. And a kid had basically taken a rock and thrown, you know, actually a boulder and thrown it through our back uh, window. And I got up and I, I walked to the top of the stairs and looked down into the kitchen. And there was this kid standing in my kitchen at one mm. o'clock in the morning and clearly drugged out. And I, I actually thought he was somebody else. I thought he was one of my son's friends. Anyway, um, long story short, he started screaming. He wanted a knife. And, I, you know, it was 12 o'clock. I, I don't wake up really quickly. And I'm like just sort of standing at the top of the stairs with my jaw down. And he starts pulling open the drawers, looking for the knife drawer. And sure enough, he finds it. And, and that's when he looked at me and he goes, watch this and he takes the knife and he shoves it through his neck oh wow and, and i'm i'm at the top of the stairs i'm like what what the hell and i again i thought it was one of my son's friends so i start walking down the stairs by this time he's slashed both his his wrists there's blood everywhere and me coming down the stairs spooked him i mean like i said the shock of of stabbing yourself but on top of that all the drugs that that he had in his system spooked him and and he turned on me and before i knew it uh you know he had stabbed me in the chest that event um i mean everything turned out fine he, he ended up being fine i ended up being fine i've kept that for a long time haven't really dealt with it but it, that memory really surfaced when I'm in the gun shop and, and I've got these two guys doing, you know, slasher moves uh, and, and defensive moves against guns and things of that sort. And that was what brought the most, if you want, stress or anxiety about being in the gun shop at the very beginning. But, you know, it's time goes on, you know, you become more and more comfortable and Bill and I had a lot of opportunities as well as another guy in the shop. His name was Lou. He's an ex army guy. All of them understood. They understood some of the, you know, call, I don't know, PTSD or whatever you want to call it from, from that type of experience. And they, unlike other friends, they didn't make fun of it. They didn't make light of it. And they understood what it meant to have to deal with something like that. And, and that's something I really appreciate about mm -hmm. working at the gun shop. Mm -hmm. um, you know, mind you, there were other things that made me stressful, but you know, that's no, but that's that is that's a super interesting 
point that you're making, which is that ability to empathize because of who they are, right? That that maybe other people, maybe some of your your you know your more liberal friends wouldn't have been able to empathize, empathize in, in the same way. Would that I think be true? true? I think that's true. I really yeah. Do. yeah. That's that's really interesting. There was a woman I remember um, in in one of my workshops who um, was uh, in, in the workshop. You know, people come in and they sit at small tables and they sit with people they don't know. And she sat down next to this older gentleman who uh, clearly was a Trump supporter. You know, he had the paraphernalia and everything, and she was clearly not. And so she's telling me the story afterwards, and she says that. Um, uh, you know, I just hope the workshop gives me some tools to deal with this guy. And they end up, one of the things they do in the workshop is they have a chance to share sort of the kind of the high and low points of their life story. And in that conversation, it turned out that the woman was married to an army vet, an Iraq war vet who suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. And the older gentleman turned out he was a Vietnam war vet who um, suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. And so, you know, he was able to empathize with her, right, in, in a way that nobody else could, right? It didn't matter um, how the guy voted, right? They had just established that deep bond of empathy. And I just think that empathy is such a powerful, powerful uh, connector, for sure. That's, that's quite a story. I, I would think, though, I mean, that was your first day, right? That, yeah. That, <laughs> and, and so I could really see how you might say, whoa, mistake, bye. But you didn't. You stayed there even even though that was like your first intro. That's that's kind of amazing to me. Um, I, I credit that to to really Emil and, and Lou. Um, as I said, Emil is an amazing, amazing individual. He was born in. I believe Palestine. <laughs> um, he was one of four brothers. Uh, his mother collected the whole family and moved to the West Coast back in you know the '60s. I believe his father had passed away and basically struggled, you know, growing up relatively poor uh, at the beginning uh, in, in San Francisco Bay Area, and then eventually uh, he joined the Marines gave him a foothold and, and sort of experience in, in starting businesses, just, you know, a very warm person uh, and very, very grounded at the same time. Um, I, I've, I can't tell you how many times, you know, there's, there are a lot of, not a lot, but there are addicts, uh, drug addicts, meth addicts up in, up in the Calaveras County and Emil, you know, he'll spot one and he'll, take the person over to the store, get him a sandwich, get him a Coke. Mm. Um, he's, he's again, very empathetic and, and recognizes how lucky he has been in his life to have grown up in this country, to have had the parents that he had, to have the brothers and the support that they provided. And, and also his wife, who is uh, a very special, special woman. Um, Lou, very different sort of background, grew up, I think, relatively poor in, in the South similarly joined the army uh spent i think 27 years there kind of a quiet guy but but yeah i mean very supportive of me he was someone <laughs> he was the one who took it upon himself to teach me about you know, sort of the rules of, of handling guns he was kind of a no-nonsense guy you know i i have a tendency here 
to, to lean towards joking about a lot of stuff. And, and he didn't have a lot of patience for that. <laughs> so him teaching me about how to handle guns, you know, the do's and don'ts, uh, and me occasionally with, you know, feeling a little bit uncomfortable around weapons, um, would joke about it. And he was like, no, yeah, we're, we're going to keep it straight here. We're going <laughs> to, mm-hmm. this is not a joking matter. Well, I, I would love to hear, given these kinds of experiences, how you think about people who are so devoted to, to guns and so devoted to their interpretation of, of the Second Amendment. You know, as after you immersed yourself in it, how would how would you describe that culture? How would you describe those people? Like what what is it about that 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 kind of gun culture that is so appealing and why it means so much to a, a lot of people uh, on the right? First and, and foremost, I, I don't think that, and, and again, I, I, there are exceptions, but I think I would say that most of the people that I met, the vast majority, are, are pretty much on the same page as me and, and all my liberal brethren uh, when it comes to our opinions about guns and, and who should own, who should not. I would say greater than 90% of all the people I met agree that there should be some sort of training for everyone who buys a gun. There should be some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of policy put into place, place to make sure that the people who own guns are mentally stable. That, that, you know, if you have some sort of history of mental instability, or if you have a, a history of, of abuse, that maybe you're not the right person to own a gun. I think they agree with that. Again, there are exceptions. There, uh, there are people who are, are strict Second Amendment folks. But I mean, I, I, I think it comes back to the whole point of, of this book that I've been writing is the reasonable folks. It, it's not like, you know, I, I ever got into a shouting match with somebody about, you know, the Second Amendment or any of the issues that are the hot button sort of issues of our times. Mm-hmm. Everybody would listen. Everything They would listen to my side. I'd listen to their side. People are reasonable. I think, I think, you know, the real lesson I took home is, you know, turn off your, your, your TVs and your radios and, you know, turn off Facebook and turn off MSNBC and, and, and Lou Dobbs from God Fox news or wherever he comes from and start interacting with people instead of absorbing sort of the opinions of other people who I think can benefit from, from having polarity within our, our, our environment, our, our country. What I wanted to ask you too was, did the people who come in, right, did they somehow get to know you, you know, who you were from an ideological perspective, right, that you were sort of an unlikely person to be working in a, in a gun shop? Did that kind of ever come into your interactions with folks? Yeah, quite a bit. I, I was, from day one, actually, the, the highway patrol guy, you know, nicknamed me Crunchy Granola because of my boulder sort of origins. And I think pretty much everybody in the community knew that, you know, I didn't carry a gun. I didn't own a gun, probably shouldn't be a guy and, you know, selling guns in a gun shop because I didn't know anything about guns, but, but they were, they were caring. We developed relationships that there was no animosity that, that was built up between me and anybody in the community 
that was tied to to issues of you know modern politics of today you know whether it be guns or abortion or things of that sort it just never happened you know they would come in you know we would we'd sometimes for an hour or two hours just sit around and talk um, if they needed something we'd take care of it if they didn't you know fine we'd just sit sit and talk how has that changed on, on a political level uh your attitude towards guns and then do you basically have the same positions now, but with more understanding, have you softened them or changed them in some way? Um, I don't know if I would couch it in, in terms of, of political beliefs. I, I guess the experience itself is, is maybe, maybe soften is, is a good term. I, I'm pretty much in the same position when it comes to my belief that there is a need for regulation of guns. You know, I think making sure that, for lack of a better term, the wrong people don't end up having guns. I think that training is 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 critical. Um, there are lots of instances in in the first couple of weeks where I mishandled, you know, a gun. It was empty, but but just simply, you know, as Lou pointed out to me time and time again, that's not the way to handle a gun. Don't do this. Don't do that. I think there's a lot of training that's absolutely essential for anyone to own a gun. And I think that's, that's something that we should have. Most people that I met in the gun shop agree with me. I think that what you're probably referring to or hinting at is, is, is the question of, uh, of things like AR-15s and other assault weapons that are, are out there. Again, uh, I, I knew a lot of people who owned uh, AR-15s. I, I didn't meet one person who was not uh, a responsible gun owner who owned one of those weapons. So I, I've had conversations with, with friends and, and relatives regarding you know, the, the ownership of assault weapons. And, and in general, I, I find them to be very alarmist. And, and, and I understand that. Uh, but again, based on my experiences, most of the people that I, all the people I, I should say that I met regarding uh, who owned AR-15s or other assault weapons, are extremely responsible, level-headed folks. That said, you know, is that if you have to get if you have to get rid of a gun, maybe that would be a good one. Um, but I, I think of anything I've swung, I've softened my views. Um, I'm not scared of weapons the way I was when I first started. Um, I'm more comfortable with people who own. Weapons, and I'm more quick to to recognize somebody who maybe shouldn't own a gun, or maybe I should have strengthened my views on on, on what I believe uh, should be the sort of set, the sort of steps that need to be taken for gun ownership to take place, and and I've strengthened my ability to understand or see people who are unstable and and own guns as a result of of the experience. I would imagine, too, that you, because of the relationships you established, that it would be easier for people to have that on the other side to have that conversation with you. You know, you sort of developed some credibility with folks. And I don't know if, if you ever had a chance necessarily to to directly um, kind of cash in on that credibility to have a, a conversation that might have been before strenuous or or difficult in some way because you might be 
you know, presenting a point of view that they didn't agree with. Did did you ever have that? Were you able to sort of cash in on some sort of credibility by virtue of actually being there and learning about them and getting to know them and getting to know the culture, et cetera? I, I, act, I did have several of those conversations, but I got to tell you the one that, that really stood out the most. And, and I should say right up front, I apologize for my stories. There was this kid, like I said, uh, his name is Randy, a great, great kid knew everything about guns, a great coworker. He and, and I ended up working together, just the two of us on, on several days. Randy's obviously pro-gun. And, and we got into it one day, starting to talk about guns. And um, we started actually with guns, but then we moved on to the issue of immigration, of all things. And Randy, I didn't know much about Randy's family. I didn't know much about his upbringing. But anyway, he was talking about, I think he was first talking about Black Lives Matter. And because there was, they were in the news at the time and there had been a protest and maybe a car had been burned. And he, he said something to the effect of, I just don't understand these people. Why just get over it? Just, just move on, get back to work. And, and I tried to, you know, sort of give my, side of it. I said, you know, this is an important issue, just like the Holocaust was an important issue to my family. I said, you know, it's, it's worth listening to. And he, as much as he ever did, he's a kind of a quiet kid, but as much as he ever did, he kind of exploded. And he goes, listen, nobody is giving my family anything. And that's when he sort of opened up and he said, uh, he told me about his father. His father had actually lost both of his arms in some sort of industrial accident. And as a result of that, you know, they lived a very meager life. Uh, his parents divorced. Randy spent most of, most of his youth bouncing back and forth between one household and another. And from your perspective, my perspective, given, you know, our education, our background, our families in, in relative poverty. And, and so Randy conveyed that, that his father had had the same prosthetics for over 17 years and nobody, nobody was offering to get him a new set of prosthetics. And so he had a real issue with anybody asking for money who, who would get, as he put it, get in line in front of his father. I mean, he loved his father dearly. And he, you know, whether it was Black Lives Matter, immigrants from, from South America or Central America, um, he didn't care who they were. Nobody got in front of him. And so it was, it was a, an instance of finally peeking underneath and having somebody tell me exactly why it is they had the views that they had. And from in this instance, it was just pure love. He just loved his father so much. He lived with his father. He protected him. You know, he helped cook for him. And, and that was, that was, you know, go back five years. I probably would have looked at Randy and he would have made some sort of statement about, you know, I don't understand black lives matter. Those people should just shut up or whatever it is. And I would probably say, ah, redneck, you know, gun toting redneck. But in fact, he wasn't that he wasn't that at all. He was just a, a, a kid who had been sort of lost, um, you know, shuffled off to the side 
lived in poverty, but but clearly loved his father. And that that was the basis of his his beliefs. And it was interesting how that day ended up because out of the blue, he says, you know, because we were talk, talked about lots of different subjects. We talked about the Holocaust. We talked about Black Lives Matter. We talked about immigration. Then all of a sudden, he pops up and he goes, and what is this about women not being paid equally? And <laughs> it, was, it was really funny. And I'm like, hey, you know, we're kind of going off on lots of different directions. He goes, no, no, you're trying to tell me that women who are MDs, who are, who are doctors, don't get paid the same as men. I said, well, it's, it's you know, it's all on the you know, the statistics I said, and I pulled up a, an article uh, from the Department of Labor Statistics and, and they have all these graphs, you know, for various different industries showing, you know, the, the pay scales for men, the pay scales for women. And, and he goes, you know, well, where did this come from? And I said, well, just go down to the reference section. And I, I got the impression he never, never looked at an article like this, had never seen it, uh, much less, I, you know, I kind of got the sense he didn't really understand the statistics that went behind it. And, and he stopped and he was looking at these things and I explained as best I could what the stats were. And, and he goes, well, I guess I could believe that. Mm. And I'm thinking, yeah, I finally convinced somebody on the other side that, yeah, that, you know, some of this stuff is real. We need to pay attention to it. And then he leans over and he goes, but you can't have my guns, John. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you keep your guns. Yeah. I guess I would just, as a way of closing, you know, bring it back around. We mostly disagree on a few hot topics. And it does seem right, right, that, that it is those few hot topics that prevent us from building the kind of relationships we need to build to be able to have the kind of conversations we actually need to have. And so when I think about your experience with the gun shop, what, what, what it says to me anyway, is that this doesn't need to be a topic that kills the relationship. This isn't the thing, this isn't the thing that as long as it's there, I'm not going to relate to you. And I'm going to go out uh, for myself further out and say, you know, and our differences on abortion don't need to be the thing that divides us to the point where we're not even willing to relate to each other. You know, how do we take these few things that we disagree with on really strongly and put them into a proper perspective so that we can still relate to each other so that we can still, as I say, build those those kinds of relationships that actually allow us to get to know each other, to talk to each other, to build some trust, to build understanding, to have those opportunities to say, well, here's here's research, here's article, here an article, here's data. Oh, okay, I guess I could believe that. You know, it takes work to get to that point, but work that more of us, I would say, need need to undertake. I I. I agree with everything that you said. I, I I would maybe rephrase something. I don't. For me, this was not work per se. I actually, like I said, I was paid to come to the the shop two days a week, but I ended up coming five just because I enjoyed being with this crowd so much. I think you're you're right. Once you peel back the, the layers, we don't need to be single topic communities. In fact. Um, if, if anything I gained from this, uh, the most important thing is, is, is that we need to be interacting more. Uh, we need to sort of, we have these 
barriers that exist between rich and poor, black and white, Latino, that, that somehow prevent us from even interacting. But in fact, they're, you know, my family is, you know, of um, Eastern European Jewish origins and, and Emil was Palestinian. You know, we're the best of friends. But it took, it took time to actually be together and, you know, share a pizza, have a beer together, work together. Uh, for that to, for those barriers to sort of dissipate. And, and I've done it ever since I left. I mean, I, I left the shop, you know, we traveled around a bit trying to find a new place to live. And we ended up here in the Northwest. And first job I took was working on an organic farm. And so I spent three months pulling weeds and interacting with farm workers. And, um, you know, again, in the past, I might have looked at these people and said, oh, I don't really want to hang out with those folks. But that's not what I came away with. I mean, <laughs> one of the guys I worked with has, has nine felonies. <laughs> Another guy, uh, you know, was, was an illegal, I guess that's not the proper term, but uh, undocumented. Yeah, undocumented. Thank you. Undocumented uh, from, from Mexico and both genuinely good people, despite you know, their backgrounds, uh, the guy with the felonies. Yeah. He made some big, big mistakes in his life, but he's a good guy. And since then, you know, I, I, I worked for a summer doing that. And now I work with a handyman and we, he and I differ on a lot of different topics, but, um, he's a good friend. He's a good friend. He genuinely tries to help people out and, and we go and build stairs and, and build gardens for people who, who don't have the money or don't have the wherewithal to, to do it themselves. So uh, I, I think that's, that's the takeaway. That's the big takeaway for me. Doing more of this, mixing more and more with people who I never mixed with before. Um, and I'm actually really appreciative that I have the time to actually do it at this point in my life. I wish I'd done it earlier. I really do. Well, with that, I think that's the perfect wrap up. Thanks again, John. Say hi to Lori for me. I will. Take care. <laughs>